0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Today we will uh, be doing a very brief exposition of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. What makes a man a man? What is it that separates man from animal, that makes man a being created in the image of God? Lift this up. Man is the only being on earth that does more than merely survive. Man is the only creation that is creative. Man has made fantastic works of art, has taken stone and shaped it to his will, has built buildings to reach up and touch the sky, has, to quote Genesis, gone forth and subdued all of creation. On Earth, man alone has pursued the sciences. Man alone has looked up at the stars and asked himself, why are they there? Even more, on Earth, man alone has asked why. In short, the image of God in man, that which makes a man a man and not an animal, that which is the best representation of the spirit and essence of man is his intellect, his mind. The mind and the spirit are inextricably linked. Whether or not you believe that they are one and the same or separate things altogether, they represent the same thing, imago Dei. That is, they are the image of God in us. They are what makes a man a man and not an animal. However, this mind is certainly not a perfect image of God. Like the rest of man, the mind is depraved, sinful, and imperfect. This thought is repeated in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, which states that the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately wicked. Of course, this is operating on the understanding that the heart, that is, our emotions, our natural sense of ethics, our sentiments, our feelings, are all just facets of our mind. Since the mind is depraved, it is unable to comprehend, at least on its own, ultimate existential truth and is thus unable, at least on its own, to find ultimate existential meaning. If the mind is what makes us creations in the image of God, is our very essence, and this essence is fundamentally depraved, then it is only logical for us to assume that it is redeemable only by that which redeems the depravity in man, and that is the gospel. With that thought in mind, I would like for us to look at our text for this morning, which is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Is it up? All right. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If we could, let's bow our heads and have a moment of prayer. God, let us take this text today and let us get every modicum of truth we can out of this. God, I'm talking about myself here. Let me understand this better than I did before. And may everyone else here understand it better than they did before. May we glorify you in everything we do here and in our understanding and in the renewal of our minds. Hallowed be thy name. May all glory be unto you. Amen. All right, so let's break this verse down a little bit. We focus on the last phrase of the first sentence. It says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, there are three words that kind of stick out to me in this last little phrase, and that is present, bodies, and spiritual. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a grammar lesson here. The word present is a verb. By virtue of being a verb that is used in an instructional context, the word present is instructing us to act. Now, the fact that we are instructed to act is of utmost importance because it shows us that one way the gospel affects the one who accepts it is in his actions. That is to say, the gospel causes the one who is redeemed by it to live in a different way, a sacrificial way, a way that seeks the highest good, which is the highest being, which is God. In other words, when the gospel impacts us, there is to be an observable change in our outward behavior. Now, I'm not saying that we are to ascribe to some cookie-cutter set of, quote-unquote, proper Christian behavior. But I am saying that because of what has been done in our souls, and more specifically to today's sermon, our minds, there is to be a difference in the way we conduct ourselves. That is, we present ourselves as a living sacrifice. We yield to God and submit to whatever his will is in our life because his will is the highest good, because he is the highest being, because he is God. Bodies is the other word that kind of stuck out to me. And the fact that the word bodies is present shows us what it is we are to present, and that is ourselves. Here are the word bodies, as Joseph Haratuni in a great... Presbyterian theologian, once wrote, the word bodies is a part of man that represents the whole of him. For the members of the body are the means by which a man acts. But he, he being God, demands of us integrity not only of the body, but also of the mind and the spirit. The word spiritual is perhaps the most interesting word in this passage. Because the original Greek word can be translated in a way that is so much more expansive Than our limited English language can possibly convey The Greek word here is logikos From the root of which we derive our word logic Now for this particular word I prefer the semantics of the King James Version Now that's not something you're going to hear a young guy say very often But I really do prefer the semantics of the King James Version here In the King James Version it reads, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now the fact that the word logikos may be correctly translated into either rational or in some cases reasonable, or spiritual, is of immense importance, and I think it is something that we need to take note of. You see, the dual meaning of the word logikos shows that our minds and our souls are inextricably linked together, that the mental and the spiritual are one and the same, or at the very least they represent the same thing, and both are renewed only by the gospel as we have discussed earlier and as we will see as we move on to the second portion of our text. Do not be conformed to the ways of this world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. Romans 12 verse 2. Do not be conformed. Let that sink in for a little bit. See, we live in a world that demands conformity. Now, you may be asking yourself, how does our world demand conformity? If if anything, we live in a world that screams individualism and preaches humanism and, and, and the freedom of expression as its own form of gospel. How in the world does that demand conformity? If anything, it demands the exact opposite. And this is a perfectly logical objection to my claim. However, if we examine the ideology of our society in a bit more depth, the rhetoric behind that objection begins to lose some of its traction here. You see, ever since the United States entered the postmodern age after World War II, that is when most historians go back and say the beginning of the postmodern age was, ever since that, almost every leading secular thinker has proclaimed the ideas of individualism, has screamed, as Shakespeare once put it, to thine own self be true. However, this entire ideology rests on the presumption that man is capable of being true to himself. Our society preaches freedom of expression so long as you are expressing something that is safe and morally acceptable to the society wanting you to express it. If you do not believe me, just make a public statement that you do not find homosexuality to be morally acceptable. Within a week, you will be considered an irrational, unintelligent, subhuman, bigoted imbecile, regardless of what logic or reason you have backing your claim. They do not care for logic and reason. They do not care for individual thought. They want only conformity to their ways. Hey, we really don't live in a society that demands conformity, right? I mean, I can hold any view, any view I want, and be just as respected as the person who holds an opposing view, right? In any context. See, the entire notion of individualism goes out the window when an act of individualism involves deviation from certain norms as all human societies develop standards of morality which they will uphold vigorously and demand conformity to. However, the believer in Christ ascribes to a higher morality than the cheap ideology of this world. As believers in Christ, we, through the renewal of our minds by the mercies of God, are able to move beyond the conformity of this world as we look to someone higher than our neighbors for our ethics. Now that being said, do not misinterpret this as license to look down on others, and I'm speaking more to myself than anyone else in this room. Do not misinterpret the phrase, do not be conformed, as do not respect or do not love. Yes, we are instructed not to conform to this world. Yes, we are instructed not to submit to those around us. And we are most definitely instructed not to look up to others simply by virtue of them being others. But we're also not to look down on others because of the virtue that they are others. You see, we are all one and the same. We are, as the church, to look at the world as our equal. As we are all totally and utterly depraved. And depravity is the great equalizer of men, the great revealer of our universal need for Christ and the gospel. So if we are not to be conformed to the world, if we are not to buy into the cheap moralism dangled in our faces, then what is it that we are to do? R.C. Sproul put it excellently in his book, The Gospel of God, Romans, when he said, Christians are called to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth, and to show a more excellent way. This is not so much a call to drop out of society and culture as a call to excellence, dedicating our lives to the glory of God. How do we do this? How do we, as Christ followers, go beyond the standards of good and evil set up by the broken world we live in? The answer to this, as well as many other things, can be found in Scripture. Do not be conformed to the ways of this world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, the effects of the gospel on the mind are twofold. There are the internal effects, namely the actual renewal of our minds and the corresponding inner refusal to conform to the ways of this world. The other effects are external, These external effects are the direct results of the internal effects. The external effect resulting from the renewal of our minds is that we discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Once the mind has been renewed, it has the ability to distinguish what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now that being said, do not fall under the illusion that once the gospel has impacted your mind, you will magically know what you're supposed to do with your life or that you will suddenly find an immense, deep well of knowledge of theology and God and the meaning of existence or any of that. If you want to understand these sort of things, if you want to have this sort of insight, if you want to know the will of God, you must study the Word of God. You must study His Word more rigorously than you have studied anything in your life. You see, the mind that has been renewed by the gospel, by the Son of God, is able to comprehend the will of God from the word of God, by the Spirit of God. And once it has been comprehended, it may be applied in the life of the believer. Being in the word is obviously of immense importance. It is only through the rigorous study of God's word that his will can be discerned. In other words, do not think, and again, I am talking to myself more than anyone else, That you can just sit around lazily and expect God to reveal everything to you. Expect a choir of angels to come out of the sky and tell exactly what his will is for your life. I will repeat this one last time. If you want to know God's will, you must know God's word. It is by the renewal of our minds that we are able to surpass the world around us. It is through the renewal of our minds that we are able to live the most Christ-like life possible. Our minds are renewed by the mercies of God, as it says in the verse. If our minds and our spirits are inextricably linked together, as evidenced by the Greek word logikos, and it is through the renewal of our minds by the mercies of God that our minds are in fact renewed, then it only follows logically that the ultimate renewal of our minds and subsequently the ultimate renewal of our spirits is done through the ultimate display of God's mercy, which is the... Gospel. You see, the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is through this means and this means alone that we can find enlightenment in this life. The morals of the world, its materialism, its ideals, its deification of something so depraved and lowly as man is vanity. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity, as Ecclesiastes 1.1 1, 1 says all of this vanity is the revealer of the underlying spiritual condition that has plagued humanity from its very beginning and that is the depravity of man. The depravity of man is the depravity of man is the reason for genocide. The depravity of man is the reason for terrorism. If you turn on the news and you see Isis beheading another person or setting another man on fire It is because they are depraved and It is because we are all depraved We are all the same Depravity is the great equalizer Myself and the terrorists involved in ISIS We are one and the same Because we are all the same fundamentally We are depraved The depravity of man has only one answer There is only one answer to the human condition There is only one source of the mind's renewal and ability to move beyond the patterns of this world, and there is only one way to escape the spiritual death that has ravaged mankind. Can you guys take a wild stab in the air at what that might be? Anybody? Anybody? The gospel, Jesus Christ, good answers, good answers. Now, this might be an appropriate time to discuss what exactly the gospel is. The gospel is life. The gospel is, as I said earlier, the only answer to the human condition, to the depravity of man, to the problem of sin. The gospel is this. Man was created in the image of God, as we discussed earlier. He was created with a beautiful, wonderful mind, with the sole purpose of glorifying and finding satisfaction in the glorification of his creator. Man ruined it all. Man grew in this relationship when he rebelled against God and fell into sin. With sin came death death of his soul and, more relevantly to the sermon, of his intellect. Sin is the death of intellect, sin is the death of spirit, sin is death. Once sin had entered the picture, man had no hope but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. God provided a way which we can be made alive, but this way is only possible with Christ. It's only through the gospel that we can find the renewal of our minds and souls. It is only through the gospel that we can find the escape from the spiritual death that has ravaged us. It is only to the gospel that we can answer the question of our humanity. It is only through the gospel that we can experience the renewal of our minds and the subsequent renewal of our souls. It is only through the gospel that we can find once more that holy and perfect relationship with the holy and perfect, almighty, inexplicable God. Now, Brother Brent and Brother Dwayne will be standing here momentarily, and they will provide you with an opportunity to respond to the gospel. Now, there are two possible responses to the gospel. One may reject the gospel. By rejecting the gospel, you are letting your mind die. You are letting your soul die. You are rejecting Christ. You are rejecting life by rejecting the gospel. Or you may repent You may turn from your sins, you may turn to Christ, you may turn to what he did, and you may find life, life for your mind, life for your soul, life. That's what I offer to one who has not already found the gospel. Now, there are some in this room who have found the gospel and have found themselves struggling, struggling with the renewal of your minds. And there's only one thing I can tell you to do. I do not know your exact relationship with God But I do know that the only thing that the Christ follower may do in the face of difficulty is repent once more and turn to God and let him renew you. Brother Brent and Brother Duane, if you would please come up to the front and let us pray. God, please let those in the room that need to respond, respond. God, call those that you will to call. God, call those who have not yet repented to repentance, and those who have repented to repent again. Hallowed be thy name, may thy will be done. Amen.